um, a man of many accomplishments, a pilot, as well as in his incarnation here today, a specialist in Japanese culture and martial arts in particular, um, a man who has no less than seven black belts, um, who lectures and demonstrates in Japanese culture and martial arts uh, in different parts of the world to many organizations and institutions, uh, including training in self-defense for the military, British and American, as well as police forces. Um, he is also uh, the leader of an alumni tour to Japan next March, I think, Oxford alumni tour. Uh, by a wonderful coincidence, uh, Michael J is also um, the second, only the second non-Japanese person uh, to hold the rank of samurai. The first um, uh, is William Adams, uh, a seaman of the 17th century, shipwrecked in Japan, who rose to become an associate of the then shogun. And you will recognize him, no doubt, from the novel, James Clevel no novel, Shogun, and later the Hollywood film uh, made of him. Uh, William Adams, uh, also from Kent, like uh, Michael Jay, uh, has a special connection to Oxford. His logbook is on display outside. So if you haven't seen it already after the performance, please do make the effort to go and see his 17th century logbook, which is outside. And while you're outside, do visit the Bodleian shop as well. Um, well, William Adams uh, had his shogun. Uh, Michael J., we can't offer you a shogun, but we can offer you a, a venue worthy of a shogun, uh, dating, I think, from the same period, uh, around the 17th century. Um, the, the procedure for this uh, event today is Michael will speak, there will be a demonstration, and then there will be a question and answer session which I shall moderate, um, uh, after which please, as I said, do go ahead and um, uh, visit the shop and the William James, the William Adams, sorry, uh, logbook. So with that, please join me in welcoming Michael J. and his uh, two associates. Good morning, everyone. Um, as, thank you, Faisal. It's a very nice introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Um, I'll explain a little bit how I became interested in Japan and uh, then explain a little bit about William Adams, which is an absolutely fantastic story. And then I have two colleagues here. They're both very well expert in what we're going to show you. Um, they're both uh, experts in other martial arts, apart from what you're going to see this morning. Um, Dan Edwards and uh, Alan Gill. Um, Alan's been working on nights as a police officer for the last week, so he's made an incredible effort to get here. And so has Dan because of the rail and the transport system. So uh, they'll be joining me later on uh, to actually show you what happened, uh, what used to happen in Japan. Um, my background is that uh, when I was 24, I started flying for BOAC. And I'd been doing judo in this country since I was about 10, 10 years old at school. And when I started to travel to Japan, I already had a friend there who was a judo teacher, Mr. Okubo, and he had been a personal friend of the man that invented the judo system in 1882. And that was the first judo dojo training school outside Japan. And it's now the Budokai in London. Um, that's 
not its original location. And they started that in 80, uh, 1918. They were teaching and learning English and teaching Japanese at London University. So I had a very good introduction to very good people in the judo world in Japan. And has anybody been to Japan? Oh, quite a lot of people. Good, good. <laughs> so a, a, a lot of people have got a good idea of Japan now. Um, there is a huge difference between what you see as judo, kendo, aikido, uh, and various martial arts in this country. Huge difference, mostly, between what you see here and what you see in Japan. And I'll explain, we'll explain and show, show you what the difference is later on. Um, there are some very good people outside Japan teaching these things, but not many. So I went to Japan, I flew to Japan, and that's the first trip, 1973. And uh, Mr. Okubo, judo teacher, met me, and he took me to the Kodokan, which is the original judo school in Japan. And uh, as in everything, if you show an interest in something, that's reciprocated, and the, the interest grows, and you make good friends. So that's how I started doing judo. Um, and then um, I met my wife in London, and her family was involved, or still is involved, in uh, a huge Japanese military and religious event called Soma no Maoi, which means the Soma Wild Horse Chase. This is a massive event in northeastern Japan. It takes place in July for three days. And originally, the head of the Soma clan, the feudal fief, uh, was helped in battle by a horse. And because he was grateful to the horse, we don't know exactly what happened, he's very grateful to the horse. Every year after that, the Soma samurai would ride out, capture the wild horses in the area, take them back to the shrine, offer them to the gods, and give them the drink of the holy water. Um, and then they would train them to use for riding in battle. And the Soma Hun, the Soma fief, was, I think, the smallest feudal fief in Japan at that time, and very strong. The next one, Date Han, Date Masamune, was the next fief north, huge, always trying to take over the Soma land. But because of the str very strong country samurai in Soma, very strong, they weren't sort of corrupted and, and uh, <laughs> distracted by uh, fripperies and sort of court events in Kyoto and, and Edo, real rural area very tough even now. So the, the history of the Soma clan is, because it's very small, not many people know about it, but this is a massive event, and the event involves um, maybe six to 800 horsemen, all in armor. Um, or, or what you're seeing today is what the samurai used to wear. They, they may not have, you know, obviously it depends how, how sort of rich people are, whether they've got better clothes or poorer clothes, same as anywhere. So um, that would be the same for armor and, and the clothes. This is exactly what they would wear. So I, what I, I'll explain what I'm wearing. It's a kimono, which is linen. Um, it has the family crest on the side, on the two sleeves, on the back, and on the front, uh, on the front of the, the chest on each side. Um, uh, hakama, these are all silk. Um, they almost always wore tubby, the shoes, which you can see. I'll walk around so everybody can see them. Um, they're actually straw. Um, even wearing armor, you would normally use uh, straw shoes which are tied on, they're called waraji. Um, short underwear jacket, because obviously they were riding a horse, so it's, if you have a long kimono, it's very difficult to sit astride a horse. Um, and on the back is the family crest, in the middle. And you can see on the back of the shoulder here, that is my rank 
name and rank. It actually says J. Mike, because there's no L in Japanese language, so they will call me Mike. Um, it says J. Mike on the back. And my rank in the Soma Horse Association, um, which I took part in for 17 years, my rank, you rise in ranks like everything, you start at the bottom. And you rise in ranks. So this rank actually says Kumigashira, Gotaisotsuki. Kumigashira is a group commander. And Gotaisotsuki means that you're attached to the samurai commander of that area. There are five local areas. Um, so the first day everybody meets at the shrine, the second day, there's a huge parade, sort of daimyo parade as they would ride through Japan in the feudal period. Uh, priests, helpers, people carrying weapons. And um, then there is horse racing. This is all in full armor. The BBC made a, a World About Us program in 1983 about it with me taking part. And the full armor races, uh, quite dangerous. Really, really rough. <laughs> Oval track. A huge number of people come. It's, it's a it's a Japan-wide event on television. Uh, sort of average number of people that are actually watching on the spot. There's around about 120,000 people, spectators. So we have the racing. And if you, anything that you win in this event, you, you ride up to the top of the hill where all the priests and the head of the clan sit. The Soma Kazutane is the present head of the Soma clan. He has a, now has a farm in Hokkaido. Um, and for, for winning something, you receive a talisman from the shrine, which is a wooden box. It's about sort of that long and that thick, just a square box with white paper, it's written on, so there's a sort of protected talisman inside. Uh, and some of the people that take part may maybe pick up about 15 or 16 of these, and they're all tied on the back of the armor. Spectacular, incredible. Um, and then there is a, a horse, uh, a rocket chase, they fire a mortar and it goes about 600 feet in the air and explodes and two flags drop out and everybody has to try and catch the flags before it hits the ground. Incredible fight. <laughs> Uh, one of my friends there said, he said, oh, I used to have a fantastic horse. He said, my horse would actually stand up, look for the flag, stand up, and kick its way into everybody else's face. He, uh, he thought that was a great horse. So, so would I. <laughs> of course, you've got to make sure you don't fall off. So it's great fun, but it's quite dangerous. A lot of people get injured in it, but that's part of the fun. Um, so that goes on. And on the last day, there's, a, there's a, um, a, a, an actual horse chase where they round up wild horses and they're, they're taken to the shrine. And so it's reenacted. And this has been going on every year since 940. So over th nearly, what, 1,100 years nearly. Every year. Incredible. So that was my background to that. And um, they invited me initially. went up to see a family there and they invited me. And that was the first time any, any foreigner, even from outside the local area, had taken part. So gradually, as in everything, you, you make contacts and you work your way up. So that was 17 years of doing that, and this is what you wear. And I have all the horse armor and all the equipment at home. Um, now, the other thing that uh, we're going to demonstrate, we can't demonstrate that today because they wouldn't let us bring 600 horses in. Um, but we're going to show you some of the sword techniques of the feudal period, uh, which will be very interesting. Um, both the sword technique school and the Soma horse chase are classified by the Japanese government as an intangible cultural treasure. They are actually supported by the Japanese government. <laughs> so I'm going to start, that's, that's my background, so I've been going there uh, a lot. Both Dan and Alan have been to Japan a lot, so they, they know Japan quite well. Uh, well very well, really. Um, I'm going to start with a little talk about William Adams, and I'm 
don't intend to bore you with lots of dates because anybody's very interested, you can always look up dates and that sort of stuff. But what I, what I want to do is to give a, a, a flavour of what happened where, to William Adams because it, it, it is just a fantastic story that is almost a fairy tale. Unbelievable. Now, William Adams was born in 1564, um, and there is apparently no record of his birth, but today, September the 24th, is the actual day when he was baptised, and the record is in the church in Gillingham. We gave a demonstration there a couple of years ago. So he was born then, and um, he became an apprentice, a shipwright's apprentice in London. Uh, and of course, at that time, it was all hand-built ships and wooden ships, small wooden ships. Um, and he became a sailor, and he became a navigator. <coughs> Obviously, at that time, navigation was very difficult. So he, he was apparently in command of one of the ships supplying the Spanish arm, the, the fleet fighting the Spanish Armada in 1588. So he was a, a, an experienced seaman when, when he got wind of the fact that there was an expedition going from Rotterdam, five Dutch ships, tiny ships, probably, who knows, smaller than this hall, I think. Um, five Dutch ships were going on an expedition. People had already tried to go around the north of Siberia um, because the, the Spanish had control of the East Indies and, and around Spain. It's very dangerous, very dangerous because, you know, the short relations were a little bit like this, probably a lot like that. Um, and they'd already had the Spanish Armada, and so it, it you know, not, not a good place to, to go if you were English, probably, and Protestant. So they were looking for a, a passageway around the north of Siberia. Well, several people tried, and because of the ice and the weather and the, the frail ships, uh, just impossible. They, they had to turn back. They got round to uh, Vegach Island, which is on sort of north of Siberia. They got a long way, but they couldn't make it all the way. So the plan then was to try and go either, because Drake had already gone around the world, so they knew that you could go around. And several people had been a long way from England, so it wasn't sort of we'd drop off the edge of the world once we get out of sight of land. They knew you could go a long way. It was a choice of going around South Africa by the East Indies, China, and hopefully up to Japan, because word had come back about Japan, that Japan existed. They knew Japan existed. Uh, Marco, apparently Marco Polo had sent back word um, and other people had an idea. Um, the other way, of course, was to go around South America and across the Pacific. Well, I remember flying, we used to fly down, we used to fly London, New York, Los Angeles, Honolulu, Fiji, Sydney, New Zealand, Auckland. And I remember sitting out over the middle of the, of the Pacific, navigating, because we used to navigate manually, on the aircraft um, and looking out of the wind window and thinking, this is a really long way from anywhere in the middle of the Pacific. The Atlantic's bad enough because of the weather, but the Pacific is huge. Um, and you think, well, we're aiming for Fiji, and if you get it wrong, you'll be in the sea. So quite daunting, quite daunting. Fortunately, none of us ever got it wrong. <laughs> so that's why I always tell people to fly on British Airways. <laughs> But it's very daunting, you know, you look out and as far as you can see for hours and hours it's just sea. So to be in those little tiny ships, tiny, and really tiny, no equipment, you know, an astrolabe and a, one of these cross star things looking at the stars. 
just to go anywhere and get back to feet in itself without doing anything. So they decided that they would go down the coast of Africa, across to South America, and then up across the Pacific to try and find Japan, because obviously they wanted to trade. They knew it was a, they had a good idea, it was a sort of fabulous country. So they went, they, they left in 1588, five tiny sailing ships. William Adams was in one of the ships and they transferred to a ship called the Lifta, which apparently in Dutch means love. It, it, the ships were named things like Faith, Hope and Charity, that's sort of, those sort of names. They went down the coast, across the Bay of Biscay, down past Spain, avoided all Spanish, down the West African coast. And apparently there were Portuguese forts down the coast, so they're very dangerous to land there. So it was quite a, a, you know, quite a daunting task. Apparently they landed in Annabon, which is off Guinea in West Africa. Um, and there was a Portuguese fort there, and they wanted to, obviously they wanted to re, sort of refuel the ship with food and water and stuff, and there was a bit of an argument. <laughs> um, and they, they attacked the fort, and the Portuguese ran away, and they sort of looted the fort and stocked up on food, and off they went. And they went down the West African coast and crossed the South Atlantic, which in itself, just imagine in 1982 how difficult it was to get all the you know, British military across the South Atlantic. They were in this tiny ship, smaller than this hall. They went across and they, they went up and down the coast, sort of looking for somewhere to land and, and walk for water and food. Um, on, as far as I can remember, on that bit where they were going up and down the, the east coast of South America, one of the ships, I think, turned back. Who knows why, because you know, there are no sort of detailed records. The other ships went on, they went through the Magellan Strait, which has anybody been there? Because I've never been, oh, you've, it's pretty nasty. Yes, right, it was pretty cold and icy and nasty. Um, and they got, they got a sort of bit stuck there in the Magellan Strait because of the weather. Um, and they went through. One of the ships went up the west coast, they, they went up the, the, the west coast of South America, and one of the ships was captured by the Spanish. One of the ships pressed on and went to the East Indies and they were captured by the Portuguese. And some of the sailors got back to, to Holland. It was a mixture. Uh, William Adams' brother was on the ship. Uh, it's a mixture of mostly Dutch sailors, but a few others. He was the navigator. So he was actually navigating the ship. So they finished up with two ships. They now only got two ships and they're off the west coast of South America thinking, what should we do now? Because they're already short of water and food. It must have been absolutely terrible. So they pressed on, and there was a huge storm, and one of the ships was never seen again. So one of the ships obviously sunk, uh, because they, they weren't close <coughs> enough to land to get back to the land. So now William Adams in the lifter is on his own, in this tiny ship, thinking, mm, we'll go that way. And they pressed on and they pressed on. And there seems to be a, a strong indication that they landed in Hawaii. Because apparently when Captain Cook went there later, some of the natives said, oh, some of your chaps were here a few years ago. <laughs> um, and that really seems to be the only people that were in that area at the time was William Adams. So it looks as though he, he went into there. They pressed on and they pressed on across the Pacific, going west, northwest. And of course, at, at the time, they had, they, 
some people had an idea what scurvy was caused by, but apparently they didn't. So, of course, they were getting ill, and some of the sailors had died, starvation, water. Um, it must have been absolutely horrific just, just to stay alive. They finally arrived in Japan in 1600. It took two years to get there. Two years of probably what was absolute hell, really. Um, you know what it's like just flying for 11 or 12 hours to get to Japan. That's pretty horrific, generally. And you feel pretty awful when you get there. But two years of this, of starvation, no water, you know, no fresh food. Unbelievable, just to get there. The ship must have been absolutely shredded. You know, the sails tattered and, and the mast broken, storms and all this sort of thing. So, finally, there's a dot on the horizon. What's that? It was Japan. And they arrived in Kyushu, and when they got there, there were, I think there were only 18 of the sailors left on there out of, I think there were probably about 120, I think it's 120 on board when they started. So only 18 were left. They arrived in Japan, must have dropped the anchor, obviously, and a lot of little boats came out to meet them. All these Japanese people came on board, probably dressed like this, some of them. And that was how William Adams got to Japan. He was locked up by the local daimyo. Daimyo literally means big name in Japan, and it is the, the local feudal lord of the area. Daimyo literally means big name. So he, the daimyo there locked them up, sort of invited them <laughs> to land, locked them up. Um, and of course, then you have the, the, he had the decision on what to do with all these people, all these dirty, scruffy people, their teeth falling out and filthy and smelly. So, of course, Japanese have always been incredibly clean. So, so, so to see all these people, even they knew that they'd come up from a long way away, filthy people. So he kept them there. And fortunately, he sent somebody up to Osaka, where Tokugawa Ieyasu was, and said, somebody's turned up. What shall I do? And William Adams was invited to go to Osaka Castle which was a huge castle. Makes the Tower of London look like a matchbox. Very fortunately, Tokugawa Ieyasu was a very clever man. He must have been a brilliant man because he realized that William Adams was not just a bloke that had turned up, but he had all this knowledge, incredible knowledge of navigation, shipbuilding, the world, sailing. So he realized that he could be very useful. The other thing that seems to have been very useful was that the Leafter carried 19 cannons. And they knew there was a big battle coming up, the Battle of Sekigahara, where Western Japan fought Eastern Japan for supremacy. And it is thought, there is no proof, but it seems very likely that the cannon off the ship were used in the Battle of Sekigahara. They already had guns because the Portuguese had arrived in, I think, 1543. Francis Evia turned up in 1549. So the Portuguese Jesuits were already there, and they were spreading the word, the Christianity word. Of course, when William Ad Adams turned up, it must have been a shock to them, because they were, they were sort of in with the shogun, and William Adams turned up, who didn't like anything but Protestant religion. 
um, and hated the Spanish king and the Pope and all this sort of thing. So the Jesuits must have been really quite worried and obviously they tried to, you know, sort of keep him out of things. But Tokugawa Ieyasu must have been an incredibly, incredibly far-sighted man because he, he obviously met Adams and realized, apparently Adams spoke Portuguese, so they could, they could speak. The, the Portuguese were, seemed to be very good there at the time. Um, but of course, there wasn't the worry that, you know, William Adams had turned up and everything would sort of upset the apple cart. So William Adams was sent back um, and locked up, I think, for six weeks. And Tokugawa Ieyasu then sent for him again. And they obviously started talking. So, and he realized this is a very useful man because he knew the world. Um, and he must have realized that Adams was a straight honest man because the Japanese are pardon? well you might well have <laughs> I don't expect anybody would be that distance <laughs> um, he had incredible knowledge and that's what they wanted in Japan because the only, the only places they had really been from Japan was over to China. Um, you can go from Japan to Tsushima, which is the sort of bridge over to Korea. That's the closest point. So there had been some ships trading backwards and forwards. William Adams saw a very good opportunity that he could uh, do some trade um, because that was the original idea of the expedition from Rotterdam. So the plan, his plan was to try and increase influence and, and do trade. Tokugawa Ieyasu wanted his knowledge of navigation and gunnery, gunnery, and you know, they all knew this, this stuff, so it was very useful to them. So gradually, William Adams became very close, that's probably not the right word, but a sort of confidant of the Shogun. After the Battle of Sekigahara, which was later, was a few, about, I think it was about five months after William Adams landed, Tokugawa Ieyasu took military and political control of Japan. Uh, and he was, for anybody that doesn't know the story, Tokugawa Ieyasu was the, the, the shogun in the shogun novel. Um, the novel I didn't like very much, but it was, as a story it was okay. And it's roughly, roughly correct, but not, not particularly good. The actual story is, is much better. So Ieyasu became controller of Japan. He now had complete power over Japan. And William Adams was a very close contact with Ieyasu. And gradually, William Adams started to trade, and there were ships going back, backwards and forwards to China. Uh, and of course, William Adams almost certainly wanted to go back to, back to England, because his wife and family were there. Um, but he never got back to England. Now, in, in what I've read about it, William Adams, and, and looked into it, um, most most written accounts of the period seem to say that Tokugawa Ieyasu kept him there. Now that may well be true, but from my experiences, and I don't know because it was, you know, 1600, 400 years ago, um, my feeling is that William Adams found it such a fabulous country that he wanted to stay there. That, that's the way I would like to look at it. Um, other people may, may know differently. Um, but in my experience, it's such a wonderful country. So I think that he found it was so good and completely different to England. Um, 
England also was fantastic and still is in many ways. Uh, but it was a different world, it's a completely different planet. Alessandro Valignano, who was the head of the Je Jesuit priests, wrote in one of his accounts of the Japanese, he said, these are the best people yet to be found and it is unlikely that we will ever find a better race of people anywhere in the world. Um, and of course, all these people had come from what was a very sophisticated country, Europe, Spain, very sophisticated country, advanced. Um, and they'd probably been going to, to sort of lesser countries where there was no culture, and, uh, were not in their, their view, not advanced culture, uh, and colonizing them. And they probably just, I guess they probably just thought, mm, well, you know, everywhere we go is not going to be as good as home. And they got to Japan and they must have been really surprised. Um, one of the things that was particularly noticeable to them was that the law was applied absolutely impartially and strictly. Any offense, they really punished the culprit. So um, it was a very clear-cut way to behave. And after the Tokugawa shoguns took control, then everything was uh, prescribed, the way you did things, what kind of clothes you wore, the social structure. Very clearly defined, very difficult, almost impossible to change your social class. Some people did, but it was incredibly rare. So he stayed there and he became more and more powerful. He was given an estate. Um, if you look in the book there, um, it says that his name, Japanese name was Anji Miura. Uh, Miura was the place where the shogun gave him an estate to live. And he actually made William Adams a samurai. Now, the status of samurai at that period was absolutely without question. They had absolutely, absolute authority over everybody else. Absolute authority, very powerful. Uh, and the, the way they did it was by military power. Also political power, um, but you've got to have the force to back up whatever you want to do anyway. You know, if somebody argues, you, if you really want to do something, you've got to have the physical force to do it. So William Adams was given an estate, and the Dutch turned up and they opened a, a trading post in, uh, near Nagasaki. And there was also an English trading post called the English Factory. And the English ship that turned up, it's very interesting, I went to a lecture on the origins of the English Civil War last year in the British Library. And in the permanent display there, they have a painting, and we were looking at all these fantastic, same as here, incredible priceless objects. And there's a painting, and it's a sort of long beach with some palm trees painted. It's a lovely little watercolor picture. And it said, this painting was painted from the deck of the Clove. And the Clove was the first English ship that went to Japan. And that's the first English ship that William Adams saw after he'd been in Japan for 13 years, I think. Must have been an incredible shock to see an English ship turn up. And then they started the English factory, the trading post, and that went. Of course, there was a lot of political intrigue between the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Spanish. The, there was a papal ban on the Spanish um, doing missionary work where the Jesuits were, and a lot of complicated stuff. Um, so all these people were fighting for sort of supremacy, which, which they would. But at the, at the sort of almost the center of this was William Adams, because he had the confidence of the shogun. And clearly, because the shogun trusted him to be absolutely honest, even the, the Jesuits and the Dutch, although there were odd arguments, 
they even wrote down that he was a very trustworthy man. So he must have been a really, really good man. Finally, the English factory failed in Japan, and William Adams made several voyages uh, between Japan, uh, Cochin, China, and Siam, backs and forwards, for about four to five years. And the logbook outside is his written record of those voyages. There's no record of the voyage from Rotterdam to Japan, as far as I know. Um, I saw a facsimile copy of this in the Tokyo University uh, a few years ago. I was there with a friend researching and absolutely amazed at it. And they've got the, the original one is outside. And it's written on Japanese washi, which is paper. Um, and a lot of people wonder what is rice paper. It's not rice paper, it's normal paper. Rice paper in Japan doesn't exist. So there's his logbook outside, which we're going to have a look at later on, which is an incredible opportunity. And I have to thank the Bodleian Library for, for letting us see it today. There is also another document, which they hadn't got the space to put out today, called uh, Shuinjo. Shuinjo is a sheet of paper signed by the shogun or government, and it is with a big red stamp. Shuin means a red seal. It's a big red hunko stamp on it, signed by shogun, um, giving permission to leave the country. Um, because for well over 200 years, Japan was a closed country. Anybody that left and came back was killed if, if you managed to escape. Um, and the reason for that was, um, I think around about 1630-something, they because the Christian missionaries were getting too overzealous, um, the third Tokugawa shogun, Yemita, there was a, a huge purge of the Christians in Japan. Serious, serious purge. I mean, they were burning people and boiling them in oil. Uh, very, very unpleasant. So they pushed out. They, they were worried that the, the Japanese culture was being corrupted uh, by all this political intrigue. So. William Adams was there all through this, so he must have seen it. Um, and an incredible contact between the, the other foreigners and the, the, the government, the shogun government. So there is there a, a lot of documentation about this period. There are some very good books about it, um, which if you're interested, you can find. I say I'm not going to bore you with dates and things, but I really would like you to sort of try and feel the flavor of that period and what William Adams did. Just an incredible fairy story. He married, had children, um, and there is some indication that he had another wife. <laughs> he never got back to Japan. There were letters went backwards and forwards, um, but when you imagine that it takes two years for a letter to get to Japan, then they've got to read it, if they can find somebody that can read. Then they've got to write the answer and have a think, then they've got to send it back. So to get a, a letter back home here, and then get a reply in Japan took four years. So not very good communication at that time. In a way, it was very good because it meant that he became more and more Japanese. Some of the, the foreigners, English, apparently uh, Saris, the captain of the clove, was, was rather annoyed because he thought that William Adams had become too Japanese. And of course, even a simple thing in Japan, people don't wear their shoes indoors. So of course, everybody wears shoes indoors in, in Europe. Um, so William Adams had become Japanese. You imagine all these sort of rough seamen turning up off the clove and clumping through beautiful Japanese houses. And that must have been a real shock even for William Adams. So huge culture shock both ways. He must have learned Japanese as well. So spectacular story. 
and he died naturally in 1620s, he was 56. So probably quite a good long life for an adventurer like that, you know, in the Spanish Armada battle all around the world, living in Japan. Um, so, incredible. He became samurai. Now, the reason that I have a samurai rank, which is an honorary rank, is because of my participation in the Selma horse chase. There is no legal rank. It does not confer any legal status nowadays, as it did 400 or even 130 years ago. Um, so, you know, I, I well, wouldn't. I mean, it's like somebody in the House of Lords saying, I'm Lord so-and-so, I'm going to park my car here. <laughs> you still can't park there. Um, but um, it's, it's, in a way, it's a similar sort of story because I've, I've made all these wonderful contacts and friends over there which have enabled me to see really inside Japanese life. And in Soma, the whole area is controlled by the Horse Association. And in a nice way, in a very nice way. It's very well organized. Um, of people of all, from all walks of life. But the, the main organization, the Soma uh, Kibakai, the Horse Association, uh, they are mainly old samurai families. So almost all. Occasionally they have outside guests nowadays, but it's generally samurai families. So that's um, generally the talk about William Adams. I've got the clock here so that we can, so we can see what's... So what we're going to do now is to show you the kind of thing that William Adams would have seen. Um, now I've done a lot of English martial arts, archery and horse riding and sword techniques, but what you're going to see today comes from a, uh, the, Japan's premier classical martial school and this was founded almost 600 years ago in eastern Japan near Narita airport the name is Tenshin Shoden Katori Shinto Ryu Tenshin Sho is founded by a samurai in uh, Sawara which is just east of Narita airport Tokyo who was born in 1387 and lived to the age of 102 which is pretty spectacular then but took part in many battles and at the age of 60, he wrote down what he'd done to survive in all of these battles. So we know the headmaster, uh, Mr. Otake, who's now 83, uh, still practicing teaching, fantastic man. He has all the original scrolls from that period. Um, some other scrolls are visible in some of the shrines in the area. And the scrolls are quite long. They're probably almost as long as the width of this hall and about that wide, a normal Japanese scroll. And they have little, it's an encyclopedia of techniques all written down, little pictures of little matchstick men fighting. And the curriculum of the school covers sword, long sword, short sword, spear, long stick, naginata, which is a spear, um, unarmed techniques, really vicious unarmed techniques for use on the battlefield. Uh, some of the military still use the same techniques. Also, design of castles, samurai houses. It was the Sandhurst of feudal Japan. If you really wanted to learn about fighting and military matters, that's where you went. And it's a very tiny group. Nowadays, we have a few more foreigners taking part, but this is a specialized closed world. When you join the school, you have to sign a written oath in your own blood that you will not correspond. Uh, you will not uh, compromise the school in any way. And one of the precepts is no gambling because it places you under the power of someone else. Also, no engagement in combat unless you are fully qualified because anybody that loses, it makes the school look bad. 
No, as far as we know, no swordsman of Katori Shintoryu has ever been defeated in sword combat. Some of the greatest figures in Japanese history have done exactly what you're going to see today. So Dan and Alan will now demonstrate the first technique of the swords. The Tenshin Shou of the name means correct teaching from God. Because of the fact that it is life and death, the teachings are thought to be divinely inspired. Because obviously, in life and death combat, your mind is really concentrated. It's exactly the same in the military now. Police, military, exactly the same way of thinking. So we're going to show us. Uh, Katori, Katori means the name of the shrine where the school was founded. Shinto is a religion. Ryu means school. Tenshin Shoden Katori Shinto Ryu. So what you're going to see now is exactly how we train in Japan. Dan, Alan, and I, and one other person who works ex-military intelligence, works in the MOD, are the only people in England doing this fully, properly qualified. So. Dan and Alan will now show you the first set of sword techniques. These techniques are what are used when you're wearing armor. This is like gunfighting training. You cannot actually shoot at the other person because then you have nobody to train with. This is exactly the same. So we, uh, they're going to do it slowly and I'll explain exactly what's happening. This is the normal engagement distance wearing armor. It slows you down a bit, the armor. Alan is waiting for an attack now. He's inviting an attack. Dan will now thrust here, to the th throat. As he cuts to the head, Alan steps out of the way of the sword and will cut to the side of the neck, which has no protection. Katori Sintorio specializes in slashing the arteries. Other schools have different targets. One, I think Shinkageryu specializes in severing the thumb because you cannot grip a weapon with no thumb. So as he's out of the way, he'll cut to Dan's neck. For training purposes, so that Dan can make a full power attack, Alan will strike to the side of the sword. But in actual combat, you would never see these two weapons touch each other, except in a real emergency or by error because Japanese saw is incredibly expensive and they protected the edge at all times. The other reason that the, the training is different from, slightly different from actual practice is to protect it from somebody outside. Each feudal thief had its own sword master and those techniques were military secrets. So if somebody was outside the training hall or hiding in the bushes watching the training, he would say, hmm, what, what, I wonder what the target is. They don't know what the target is, but we know. For real, that would be the end of it. Two seconds, finish. Same as a gunfight. Finish. But for training, we carry on. Every time you see these two weapons strike each other, it means one of the two combatants has been killed. He will now try to slash the artery inside the thigh. 
because there's no armor on the inside of the thigh because you can't ride a horse with it. Dan will step back, slashing this wrist and also protecting his leg. Alan makes another attack. Dan will step to the side and slash across the abdomen because there is no protection there. But for training, he catches it on his sword, again, to hide the technique. Alan slashes at the hip because there's no protection there. Dan will step back and slash the inside of the wrist. You'll notice that he is out of range of Alan's sword, but he can still counterattack a killing blow, which would be followed by two or three more. Dan will now step forward and try to stab into the space under the arm, where the armor plating is, does, is not there. Alan keeps out of range of the sword and he'll try to strike this wrist. But for training, he strike the sword. Dan's now waiting for an attack. This thrust, notice he's out of the way of the sword, this thrust will go all the way through, come through Alan, uh, Dan, all the way through and come out of the other side with plenty of, plenty of blade to spare. As Dan tries to cut to his head, Alan can step underneath and slash under the arm. And these are not just strikes, these are long slashing cuts. He will now try and kneel down and slash at his knee, which is also not protected. With this cut to the head, Dan will step to the side. This was also useful if he's fallen over or slipped. He can now block the cut here with the, up the edge of the blade, a single-edge blade, and thrust into the stomach. A punch to the face with the hilt of the sword, and a cut to the hip. Alan steps back there again, slash the inside of the wrist. Dan steps forward, tries to slash this wrist, and then cut to his neck. Remember, this is not one continuous movement. This is about 10 separate attacks joined together. It would all be over in one go. Bang, finished. They now retreat. Cut to the neck, followed by a slash under the wrist, which Alan will then take his hand away to avoid it. Finally, the cut to the throat, this to slash the arteries. We have all the original records of how long it takes someone to die from all of these cuts. <coughs> what you're watching now is, what, is not what people think they used to do. This is exactly what they used to do. It is the only unbroken line of teaching in Japan from the feudal period when sword combat was at its peak.
think here. We'll do uh, Bo, Bo next. When the samurai were traveling, they always carried two swords, probably three or four. Nobody ever carried one sword. No fighting man ever carries one weapon. Consequently, they could come up against anybody uh, traveling around Japan, you know, narrow roads, country roads, Gokaido roads, very narrow, dangerous roads sometimes. They may come up against somebody that was just carrying a wooden stick. So you ha this is not a samurai weapon, this is what somebody else might be carrying. You have to know, because of the long reach, you have to know what to do. So they'll, they'll show you the technique and I'll explain what's going on. Difficulty with a long weapon is getting close enough against it. So, Alan is going to make the first attack, which Dan will counter-attack. In actual fact, they would be standing slightly closer for, for real combat, because obviously he has to be able to strike. As the attack comes, Dan step out of the way to avoid the cut and strike to the side of the head. That in itself, a serious attack. He will strike the side of Alan's head, which Alan will either catch on here or strike his, strike his fingers. This blow comes up to the groin. It's a, a nasty. <laughs> He has to get out of the way and deflect it. Dan's waiting for an attack. He will block it and strike again to the leg. Alan has to get out of the way. There again, these are not one long attack. This is several attacks put together for, for training purposes. He has to now get inside because if he doesn't get inside the length of the weapon, this in itself is dangerous with a strike to the face. So, Alan has to get inside and make sure that he can't pull it back. Finish. Another strike here to the side of the head or onto the arm. So that is how the sword is defended and counterattacked against the staff bow. One of the weapons that the, uh, the Japanese have always carried, um, and in this country too, similar to a glaive, is uh, naginata. Naginata is often uh, described in this country as a woman's weapon. It's not. Although uh, we had a, a Japanese lady in the dojo in Japan who was m this high, who could kill you with her naginata in two seconds. An absolute master, tiny lady. 
Um, she had to have a little bit cut off the end because it was a little bit long for her, but she was incredible. This is an oval shaft. It's actually shaped so that you know which way round it is. It has an edge, um, and the blade is, goes from about there. It's normally a single-edged blade. It's a very short, heavy sword blade. Some are double-edged. And on the, we couldn't bring the actual weapons today because we've just got no, not enough room in the car, but I have all these real weapons at home, uh, which we occasionally use for training. Um, on the, end of the, the back end of the shaft is a very tiny, sort of blunt axe blade. It's a little tiny round blade. So this is a double-ended weapon. This is an extremely dangerous, they're all dangerous, this is an extremely dangerous weapon. Somebody that knows how to use one of these, they will kill you. There again, the difficulty is getting inside the point. sword, Alan is going to hook it out of the way and then push forward to slash the artery in the side of the neck. To avoid that, Dan gets under it and deflects it and then pushes it down, pushes it down right into the ground to actually push it into the ground. As he does that, Alan is trying to slash his leg at the same time. An attack to the hip, counter-attack as before by slashing the wrist, and he's out of the way. Cut to the head, which will be blocked by the swordsman. A cut upwards to the groin, this is even worse than a strike with a stick. Dan has to, to protect his body with the sword. They're, they're pushing at each other, they're not just standing there, they're actually pushing very hard. He's now going to push forward and jump round to the side to cut to the hip, which Alan will counterattack by slashing the leg and catching that blow on the shaft. As he turns round, he's inviting an attack. He would actually do it slightly more slowly than that. Very slow. As the attack comes, he can hook it out of the way and strike again to the hip. That's it, that's fine. He will catch it, slash again to the neck, another push round, and then they'll both retreat and wait, there'll be two more attacks now. One. Two. Hook, slice, push down again. He's now going to wait. As Dan, as Dan steps forward to slash the side of the neck, which is unprotected, the armor has brigandine. It's metal plates inside the, the cloth. Uh, uh, Alan will cut underneath the wrist. That's why Dan lifts his wrist off, to avoid it and then thrusts against the neck. 
This is really a battlefield weapon. It's too big to use indoors. This is very hard work. Uh, I'm very grateful to Alan particularly. He's been quite ill recently with a <laughs> chest infection, so he's doing incredibly well. The other weapon you see in Japan is a spear. Now, a Japanese spear is never thrown. These weapons are extremely expensive because of the construction method and skill. They are absolutely masterpieces of metalwork. Um, if you have a look in a museum at Japanese weapons, you'll see they are the best metalwork the world has ever seen, without question. Japanese spear, uh, it's about nine feet long, uh, normally with a very short point, very short triangular point, section point, maybe only that long, but it's very fast thrust. Most Japanese deaths on a feudal battlefield were caused by spear wounds, purely because it's so difficult to get past the point. And you'll see how they use it. It's used as three weapons. These are not the only techniques. There are 64 sets of these techniques for all the weapons. 64 of which you have to learn both sides to be able to do without a moment's delay thinking. Okay, first thrust is gonna come at the chest. He's thrusting at the chest. When you're on this end of it, it's very difficult to see it coming. Alan deflects it just to protect his chest. Another thrust at the right chest, which is deflected to the right. Dan will retreat. He's now thrusting at the stomach. Alan will catch this on his blade. Now, if each of it was just set forward as it is, bang, finished. So what he's got to do is to take several steps, keeping this out of the way. It's a very difficult move. Has to get close to cut to the head. Because he's getting close, Dan will retreat. And at the end, at the last minute, he'll slide the, the spear back. So he's now got a, a sword length of spear to thrust with. Very fast. If the spear gets cut or damaged, you can use the techniques that are used with the six-foot staff. So this is three weapons in one. difficult weapon to, to attack. I think we're probably, that's probably about it. Now, the, the techniques of the school include the use of the short sword, which is one like this, which I'll explain to you. Um, they, they would also carry uh, other weapons. This is just a wooden stick, just a wooden stick. This in itself is an extremely effective, dangerous weapon. We haven't got time to demonstrate, but we'll be here for a while if anybody wants to try. <laughs> right. Okay. Right, now I'm going to explain. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Alan. We'll pass a couple of these around so that you can, you can feel them. And, uh, we'll start at the end. If you want. 
They can feel, see what they feel like. <laughs> this is a dangerous weapon. Many people have been killed with these weapons, with these wooden weapons. The reason we use the wooden weapons is not because they're safe, but because they don't break, they don't get damaged. A real Japanese sword is incredibly expensive, and it's not the kind of thing that you want to damage when you're, when you're practicing. Um, I, I, we've just got time now to, I'll give you a, five, a very short uh, explanation of Japanese sword. Um, as I said, the Japanese sword is the most incredible metalwork. About a thousand years ago, they found out that, uh, how to make curved swords, because a curved sword cuts much better than a straight sword. If you cut something with a straight sword, um, just to cut, it's just a blow. It could be a killing blow, it could be a crushing blow. But if you strike with a curved sword, because of the diagonal angle, it will tend to slide and slice. The cutting power of a Japanese sword is incredible. A good sword will cut through three human bodies in one go. Absolutely astounding cutting power. It's made from two pieces of metal welded together. They're still made. And there are swordsmiths around. My own, this is my short traveling sword. This was made in about 350 years ago. My main sword at home is a tachi, which is designed for use on horseback. It was made in 1420 by a master swordsmith, also from the Yoshimitsu. It's a Bizen sword. It has a double curvature blade. It's very light. You can actually use it in one hand. When you see modern people, a lot of the modern martial arts, judo, Aikido, Kendo, they're not really martial arts. They can be modified back into what they came from, but they're, they're designed for modern purposes, i.e. mental, physical training, and they're very useful. What you're seeing here today are real classical martial arts, Kenjutsu, Bojutsu, Yari. They are purely designed for killing the other person. They have no other purpose. They're not used for sport, there is no competition. Having said that, the main teaching of all the master swords, particularly Katori Shinto Ryu, because they have Buddhist uh, Shingo Mikyo Buddhism connections and Shinto, it is wrong to kill without good reason, not just wrong to kill. So the main purpose of the weapon was to protect the family, yourself, protect the feudal fief. That's what they were, they were used for. Now, I'll show you, I'll show you my sword. Now, the scabbard is wood, for anybody that hasn't seen the Japanese sword up very close. Scabbard is wood made from two pieces of wood glued together with, anybody guess what they're glued together with, the scabbard? Any guesses? No? Rice. Uh, nothing else will do. Um, the blade is made of two pieces of metal. Um, a lot of books say it's a soft back and a hard edge. It's not. It's a very hard back and an even harder edge. It's incredibly strong. They can be broken, but the design is such that the, the cut is phenomenal. The hilt is wood and it's held on with a wooden peg. You can have a look afterwards if we've got, we'll, we'll be here for a while. It's just held on with one wooden peg. This particular sword has two wooden pegs, it's very unusual. The, the hilt is wood and it's bound with ray skin, fish ray skin. And then it's bound around with silk cord. This cord is not loose, it's lacquered. So if I were to cut that, it would not unravel. It's actually lacquered. It's, it's all glued together. It's really solid. And underneath are two metal ornaments called menuki. Um, they are in different places, so that even in the dark, I know which way around the blade is. Uh, the fittings can be metal. The, 
The craftsmanship in the fittings is spectacular. Um, if you, you look at some of the art treasures in, say, the Tokugawa Art Museum in Nagoya, you cannot believe they've been made by a human being. Unbelievable quality. So, um, the blade, this is a fairly short sword. Some of the Shintoryu swords were used even shorter swords, because the shorter, the faster. You see, it's a, it's a very curved blade. It almost looks as though it's bent at the handle. But that's exactly how it is. And if I come around, <laughs> I'll try not to kill anybody. <laughs> um, you can see the hard edge has a sort of gray line along the edge. That is not necessarily the join of the two metals. It's where the tempering is done. Uh, if anybody's interested, I can explain more afterwards. So, can you smell it? What is it, do you think? It is a spice, it's clove oil. It's highly refined clove oil. It's the only oil that is usable on a Japanese sword. Now, um, can you hold that for a second? They would carry two swords. Uh, this particular uh, short sword is called Yoroidoshi. Uh, it's specifically designed for piercing armor, for grappling with somebody if they got to close quarters. They would originally, originally they'd use the bow and arrow. That was the main weapon of the bushi, the samurai, bow and arrow, mounted archers. Then they would get close, they'd use their swords, and if they had to grapple, this would be tied into the belt very tightly, pulled out. It's almost straight. This is a very unusual, rare type of sword to see. You don't see many of these, even in museums. It's very heavy. This will easily cut through somebody's leg. And you, as you can see, it's very thick. It's, this is heavy. Um, so I'm going to show you some of the quick draw sword techniques, which are called iaijutsu. And the Japanese specifically developed these techniques to be able, it's a bit, it's similar to quick draw gunfighting where you, you may have to draw and shoot very quickly. They could be attacked any time, so they had to be able to draw their sword. If you're on a horse, you can hear the enemy coming because it's very noisy armor. If you're walking around, somebody could attack very silently. Of course, they were always ready. Interesting, all of us have had to deal with violence in the street. So we're not just talking from something we've read. Uh, we've all had to deal with it. We all keep our eyes and ears open all the time. And it's partly from the martial training in Japan, it's partly personal, personal discipline. The quick draw sword techniques, some of them are designed to use inside a house at night. Now I can't really do that on this floor. Uh, they're specifically designed for a Japanese house to hide on the floor, to attack, attack an intruder coming in and spring up from the floor and slash the face. So uh, it's not really designed for this kind of building. But I will show you a couple of the techniques that are used uh, from a standing position and walking.
If anybody watches uh, any Japanese samurai films and you watch the swordsmanship in there, one of the giveaways that they don't know what they're doing is that, <laughs> is that they, very, they very often hold the sword with a piece of the handle sticking out the back. That is a killer because it catches in things. It will catch in the sleeve. So if you ever see a film or a demonstration and they're holding the sword like that, instantly you know they don't know what they're doing. An expert will hold it here so that there is nothing projecting. It's an instant giveaway. Because it's such a huge subject, it's impossible to cover in a short time. Um, but we've got a, probably got a few minutes to go. So does anybody have any questions? Any question you like? Yes, we'll start at the back. Uh, short stick techniques, yes, I can show you short stick techniques. I'm going to do it on Dan because Alan's not feeling very well. <laughs> he's done incredibly well because he's very ill yesterday. Um, the short stick can be used either for striking the face, the eyes, the throat, the groin, stomach, bang, 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 bang. It's very nasty. Also, if he, would, if he punches, I can catch it here. Okay. Um, if he grips me anywhere, catch it here. Strike. Many strikes. Uh, the, the classical bushi, the samurai, did not just practice one thing. Most people in this country doing so-called martial arts, most of them only do one thing. They'll either do judo or kendo or aikido or karate. In the feudal period in Japan, they studied everything. They always had at least one sword with them. Um, now, some of the techniques are used. If, if Dan is to reach for my collar, say, here, like that, and I Right, next question. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll stop from the back, yes. Yes. At the end of it, when you're doing your quick draw, at the end of it, you did something with your hand. Um, the spinning of the sword of the hand is to clean the blade. Uh, it's called chiburi, to shake the blood. Um, if you had, of course, if you have just had a fight with someone and they're lying on the floor, you would normally wipe it on their clothes. But there may not be time to do that. Now, I, they would not want to put their blade back in the scabbard covered in bits of somebody else. So the, the idea, and I've tried it, it does work, um, is to spin the blade, <laughs> spin the blade, strike it, and that knocks off any debris. Uh, next question. Yes. element of ritual to all of this with moves and counter moves. So if you have two thoroughly trained experts, are you not going to finish up in stalemate? Good question. Um, these, every feudal fief had its own style of swordsmanship. So, it depends who you come up against. He may be better than you. 
it's like gunfighting in the Wild West. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a different weapon. What you see here, there is no ritualized movement. There is no ceremonial movement whatsoever in this. The only ceremonial movement is that we will bow to each other for, for, for good manners at the start and end. But there is no ritual movement in these techniques. They are purely designed to kill the other person. Yes? When you had carried out a movement and you had sort of finished, you then turned your sword and that to inflict more injury. Uh, yes, a lot of the techniques are either cut or, or thrust and then twisted and turned. Yes, it, it is. Yes. Yes. Um, I've heard that there was a competition between the rapier and the samurai swordsman and it came out as a draw. Can you comment on that? If it's a good question. I, I don't know that particular instant. I have a friend who is a, a, an expert rapier and dagger fencer, who is really good. Um, uh, I'll ask him. Um, I th because a rapier is a very long, heavy weapon, a rapier is not what you see Errol Flynn waving around in the films, something like this. It's a very heavy weapon. Um, I think you're probably right. It would probably be a draw. Every weapon has its good points and bad points. So unless you have a fight to the death, you know, who's, who's going to... Sounds quite plausible. Yes, I, I think that sounds very reasonable. Right. Yes. We'll go here. Ah, there are specific sounds for each type of cut and strike, and they are—they have two purposes. They intimidate the enemy, and they also strengthen. You know, when you push something, like if you have to push a car or something, everybody goes. Right, it just tightens all the muscles. But there are specific sounds, a to ya, for different types. It's not just the random shout. So. between two areas, what proportion of the warriors would be trained to this level, and what was the mortality rate like? That's a very good question. What proportion of people trained to this level? Well, I would say that in a country area, almost all of them would be trained, because if a battle was coming up, they'd call up the country samurai. They'd signal from the... That's what the rockets uh, and the big shell trumpets are for, and drums in Japan originally. Same as here, they had bugles. Um, they'd call people in. So everybody would tra be trained to a certain level. But as in here, like you have the territorial army, and if it came to it, you'd call up the home guard, at the, the different levels of training. As to proportion, I think the proportion of professional samurai is very small. Very, you know, really expert samurai sorts, maybe 3 4%, tiny. I'm sure there are people that know the exact details, but I, I don't know. Is that yes? It seemed to me that a lot of the fighting was aimed at gaps in your armor. So would you be sure that your enemy would have the same gaps? And if so, why didn't somebody redesign the armor? That's a very good question. Why, why not redesign the armor so that there are different gaps or you've got... There's a limit, there is a balance between being able to move and being unprotected. If you want to be able to move quickly, you don't wear anything. If you want to be protected, you put yourself in a tank and get hit by a rocket. So there is, a, there is a balance between all these things. If you look at modern police body armor, which both Alan and I wear, you will see that it comes down to here, uh, and it's exactly the same shape as Japanese breastplate in armor. 
It's exactly the same shape, really. Um, it's designed for different, uh, for different weapon uh, protection. Um, as in European armour, developments always took precedence. Um, you know, when guns came in and guns became more prevalent, they'd make the armour thicker on the front to, to take a musket ball. So I have a friend that shoots Japanese muskets, and he, he's very knowledgeable about this, but it's not, not my particular subject. But they all tried. If you look at different periods in Japan, the armour is changing all the time, just for that reason. Any more questions? Yes! Oh, more, the mortality rate, ah, good, very good question. Most people would think that if you have a sword combat between two people, you've got a 50% chance of surviving. That is not true in Japan. You've only got a 33 and a third percent chance of surviving because they never gave up. Now, there are always going to be sometimes people get, that get captured or say, yes, I give up. Um, but because they got boiled in oil, or worse, if they were captured, uh, that's why they became fanatical um, and trained to that level. The idea that people would just go out and die for their lord and master is really a misnomer. It was not like that at all. It's a lot of information from Japan has been corrupted coming here, as some of the martial arts have been. You watch Olympic judo. That is not judo in any way whatsoever. It's a modern sport. It's nothing to do with Japanese martial arts. So the chance of surviving a sword combat, you either killed him or he killed you or you killed each other. So you've only got a one in three chance. In terms of actual numbers, I really can't say. Proportion. Probably if you go to uh, sort of, you know, specialists in Japan, they, uh, there are people that would know this. I can certainly find out if you really want to know. So, but some people know. It was normal in Japan for the upper class of the samurai to ride out, call out who I am. My name is so-and-so of the so-and-so family, and they were looking for somebody of equal quality to fight. There was no glory in fighting a peasant. So they would do that. Yes, one more question. Yes. Oh, huge armies, bigger than, bigger than Europe. That was one of the things that the foreigners in Japan at this point noticed. I'm not very good at numbers and days. Uh, but huge armies, some of them said incredible sized armies. I think Sekigahara, which is probably the biggest battle in Japan. Uh, I've actually been to the battlefield, very interesting. Just a field, like, you know, like here. Um, but massive, massive. I, I can't quote you a number, but it would be easy to find out. But really huge, huge numbers. If you watch films like uh, Ram, the uh, Kurosawa film, it's a bit heavy going, but the battle, some of the battle scenes were done by the Soma horsemen, friends of mine, because they're expert horsemen. So, big battles. I think we're getting end of time. Any, one more question, Gay? Yes. When these battles were going on, who um, decided to stop and when? Like, we're losing now, let's quit. Nobody said we're losing now. They all got killed. <laughs> Simple as that. They were killed them all. Simple as that. Either burnt. A Japanese castle, they would not live in the castle keep. They lived in houses and palace outside. They would only retreat into the castle, the real castle part, as a last resort. So uh, quite, 
quite different thinking to here. There was no honourable, okay, I give up. None of that. You died. Simple. Of course, that passed on to sort of battles in the Second World War for different political and educational reasons. So, I think we're going to have to finish, but Dan, Nell and I will be here for a while, so if anybody has any more questions. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to tell you that there is more detailed information about this tour. I think there was a little slip on your chairs. And um, you can certainly take one of these if you're interested in this trip in the spring, which Mike will be going along with everyone and telling much more about samurai and how they lived. We're also going to be in the side business school. There's an alumni travel stand there. So, you know, at any time during the next couple of days, you can come and talk to us in more detail about the trip if you are interested. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike.